Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 29th, we are studying Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. The stage has been set for Jephthah to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Ammonites. But at just the moment when there should have been great celebration for the Lord's victory, the religious decay of the people of Israel leads to mourning. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Good to be back. Always good. Pastor Cook, as we get started this morning, we're in Judges 11. We've already met Jephthah in the first part. We find out a little bit about his background there. What do we need to know about Jephthah and the book of Judges as a whole that will help us into these verses for today? Yeah, the book of, uh, start with the book of Judges as a whole. Uh, It follows a really predictable uh, cycle or pattern, which I'm sure other people have spoken about. Um, Sometimes it's called structured with R's, the uh, idea of um, you know, repentance, uh, retribution, etc. I, I learned it as an ABC approach. The people of Israel are apostate or faithless, and then they are battered or badgered or beaten by the bad guys, and then they uh, confess their sins, so that's C. So A, apostasy, B, battered, C, confession, and then D is deliverance. Hmm. Um, and that follows, that pattern is, um, very noticeable, beginning with uh, Othniel to Ehud, um, Gideon, or Deborah, Gideon, and now uh, Jephthah, you'll see it again with Samson. Uh, within that structure, within that very kind of common experience, what's happening is that it's spinning out of control, or um, actually it's, it's narrowing down and it's getting worse. So if you think of the structure of the book of Judges as maybe a whirlpool or a corkscrew, uh, every time we kick over to the next judge, uh, things are faster and worse. Um, so we're on, uh, we're on the fifth of six judges here, um, so we're, we're pretty, pretty far down the, the whirlpool here, and, uh, and so that's that. Uh, this particular section, then, as we talk about Jephthah, um, the people have already um, been apostate and beaten on account of their apostasy, and they've confessed their sins. So we're now in the D section, the deliverance section of the conversation, and uh, and that's that's really where we we start um, within the just actual context of Jephthah himself. Um, the people invite him to be their leader. This is after they had already rejected him because he was the son of a prostitute. Um, so when they get beaten, they, they go hunt him down along with his quote-unquote worthless fellows, and they ask for help. He says he'll agree to do it. 
after he agrees to do it, he uh, gets into a shouting match with the uh, King of Ammon uh, about why there's any uh, strife between the two countries anyway, and it goes back to a historical incident of the people of Israel uh, trying to get into the Promised Land from Egypt. And we see this in our current modern context where, um, you know, you reevaluate history and maybe put your own spin on it. Mm. Uh, so mm. uh, what is the 1619 Project is kind of doing this to much uh, praise or chagrin, depending on uh, where you're on in on that. And um, so we have we actually see that happening. This is something that has always happened. And the King of Ammon uh, has one take on what happened, and Jephthah reminds him of what actually happened. Um, of course, the King of Ammon disagrees, so they're going to go to war here. Mm. And that's where we're at. Verse 29 is the, the war, the battle. Mm. So diplomacy has been tried, and now that has failed. So here comes the battle. Judges 11, beginning at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Right, we'll pause there and look at those verses. So, Pastor Cook, the first part of the text is is very familiar to us. Verse twenty nine: the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. We've heard that from other judges as well, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon the judge prior to the act of deliverance. What's the, the significance of that? That's how, uh, that's how the Lord always works. Mm. Um, as, uh, deliverance is carried out by the, the Spirit of God. We know this, and I know it's a bit of a jump, but we can just make that jump to uh, in our own lives, the uh, Spirit of the Lord is given to us as a gift in baptism, as uh, Peter preaches in Acts 2, uh, specifically verse 38. Um, so yeah, the, the Lord saves us by sending his Son, by, um, and then through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Uh, so this is how he saves his people. We could have a broader conversation about how Jesus Christ himself is uh, all of Israel reduced to one. I'll let you tackle that when you un when you take up the book of Isaiah uh, in future studies. Um, but Jesus Christ is uh, <laughs> all of Israel reduced to one. So the people of the Lord, uh, the Lord is always going to save his people uh, by his spirit. Uh, in this instance, as in many other locations, it is explicitly referenced uh, as something that's happening. Um, we also uh, are told as the readers, so the narrator has informed us that this is an activity um, of the Lord. This is not a deliverance that is generated by uh, ourselves, which is extremely important. We, um, The central tenet of the Christian faith, that we are justified before God um, by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So we cannot um, generate our own salvation 
cannot merit or otherwise earn, you know, works righteousness stuff. Um, so, yep, the Lord is at work here, and we're going to get another token to the, to the Lord's deliverance uh, here at the end of verse 32, um, where Jephthah indeed is the one who does this stuff, and yet it is very obvious that the agency of this deliverance is not Jephthah the man, but, but his, his God and his Lord, uh, Yahweh. Mm. Which is something that we've seen with other judges as well. There's not the same description of the battle that you get in some other judges. Gideon particularly comes to mind where the actual technique that the Lord employs to deliver the victory to his people is described. You don't get that here. It's more traditional, I suppose you could say that, in terms of the way that it's recounted. as a It's a battle. But, but I do think that that is... Again, a very important thing to keep in mind, as we've seen from the other judges, as you've been saying, that even as you get the description of what happens in verses 32 through 33, and we'll come, we'll come back to verse 30, don't worry, and, and 31, but, but before, just to, to maybe tie this up, even as the battle is described here very briefly, it still is very clear, the narrator is very clear, that this is not Jephthah delivering the victory, but it is the Lord delivering the victory through Jephthah. Correct. Hmm. Yep. That's, uh, it's, um, <laughs> oh, I have a thousand things I probably want to say on that. Um, but it, it, we want to give the credit to the Lord um, without pretending like the agency or the means by which the deliverance occurs isn't, you can't ignore that part either. So if we were going to have a conversation, as Lutherans are wont to do, about the means by which God delivers his grace, um, it, would be, uh, it would be foolhardy to say, well, God saves, and then just pretend like baptism and the Lord's Supper and preaching of the Word and confession and absolution are unimportant. No, they're, they're pretty important, and, uh, because this is the, the means or the way in which God is going, going to do it. But when they get done, we, we dare not take credit for them as though this is somehow something we've done, like baptism is somehow our achievement. Uh, it's not. It's, it's just the manner through which God has carried out his work, hmm. and um, it's his goodwill to do so. So we honor that. Hmm. Uh, well, we, yeah, we can have a, a bit of a conversation about that, Pastor Cook. I know you had a thousand things you wanted to say, but maybe we'll just say <laughs> three. So I, I'm, as, you, as you were talking, what, what comes to my mind is from the catechism, the third part of holy baptism, where the question is, you know, how can water do such great things? And I think, I think the catechism holds these two things together quite well, that it's not the water in and of itself that does anything, but it is the word of God that's attached to that water so that when the word of God is attached to the water, that water does then give life. We don't somehow neglect the water of baptism saying, well, it's, it's the word that does it, so we're just going to forget about the water. No, we, we use the water because that's the means by which God delivers this forgiveness in holy baptism. And so in the book of Judges, as we've seen, these deliverers are not the ones winning the battle in and of themselves, and yet they are rightly remembered as those through whom the Lord enacted his deliverance, the means. We don't neglect those or despise those. Maybe I can say it that way. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good way of saying it. 
Uh, you definitely don't want to um, neglect. I, I like the way you said that, neglect or despise. We could we could shift that into a um, conversation also about just you know, like honor your father and your mother, mm. which is a pretty blanket statement. But as it pertains to me, I have a very specific father and mother that I need to honor, um, and, and it's not your father and mother, uh, though I would show them honor and respect on the basis of their um, their age, but. Um, but the same thing again. So God's word has very specific application. It's not just vague. We make it up as we go along. Hmm. Um, it's very clear, um, and very clear and very very specific. And hmm. so, and maybe that's a thing people people don't like. Um, when I stressed about agency, I this is very stereotypical. But I remember I was on a on an airplane, um, and. Uh, talking to the person next to me they saw me you know reading a, reading a book oh what are you reading uh so we got into a conversation about the faith and and they they were uh christians of a different church body and they asked me to describe well what do you guys believe the gospel is so we're just having that basic conversation and they had asked about um i said well the the, the problem um the the problem of that's facing the world is sin. So the way that you solve that problem is, is the forgiveness of sins, right? So if the problem is sins, the solution is the forgiveness of sins. How is that accomplished and then delivered? Um, and they, they struggled because um, when they heard people talk about baptism, they thought that a conversation about baptism was a conversation separated from Christ. They're like, no, salvation is through Christ alone. I was like, well, <laughs> baptism unites us to Christ. When I have a conversation about baptism, I'm actually talking about Christ and what God is doing. And so that gets back to that agency. Yeah, Jephthah is the one who delivered the—I the, mean, he's the agent through which salvation of the people of Israel occurred in this particular battle. And yet it says quite explicitly that um, God delivered them in verse 32, God, the Lord gave them into his hand. Hmm. And so who is, who is the victor? Was it Jephthah or was it the Lord? Yes, it was the Lord through Jephthah. Hmm. Um, but by talking about Jephthah, we aren't denying uh, the agency of the Lord. If we were to do that, well, then we would need to be corrected. Hmm. And so as faithful uh, Christians talk about the way that the Lord comes to us, in word and sacrament, um, sometimes we will need to pause and just remind them. You know, when I'm talking about this, I'm only talking about them because this is how God is doing His salvation work. It's not something I'm doing on my own. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Keep this is these are the ways in which God is active, and and so we we always keep that focus on God's activity, but through these means, we don't despise the means at the same time. So we see that throughout the book of Judges, Jephthah is is no, uh, he's not unique in that that, that the Lord chooses a person through whom he does his work of delivering his people. Now, all of all of that, I think, is familiar from other judges that we've seen so far. What really begins to dominate this account, though, is the verse, the two verses, actually, that we skipped over in our discussion so far, verses 30 and 31, and that's what's going to dominate the rest of the text. It's this vow that Jephthah makes. Now, even even before maybe we get into the matter of what he vows, why does he even need to take a vow? 
the spirit of the Lord has come upon him. Jephthah, I think, maybe, I don't know, maybe he doesn't know. I think he knows this. He knows that the Lord is the one who's going to do the delivering. Maybe he doesn't know that, and that's why he takes the vow. It seems he should have known that, so there really was no need to make a vow. There's plenty to talk about here, Pastor Cook. Maybe that's a place to start. Yeah, uh, he does not need to make this vow, and you are absolutely right. And he does know. He does know this. That's uh, If you back up to verse 27, which was yesterday's uh, uh, sharper iron, he says very explicitly, uh, I therefore have not sinned against you, O king of Ammon, um, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, um, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So he, he's very, he knows. This is, this is the Lord's battle. It's not his fight. Hmm. Um, so he is going to, uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's foolish, for sure. It's, it's unnecessary. But the, the most kind thing you can say about the, the vow of Jephthah, the kindest thing you can say is it was unnecessary. And it all gets worse from there. Hmm. So maybe we should be careful. You know, the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, to take a, a blessing of the Lord and try to improve upon it in some way. Um, in, <laughs> it's almost as though Jephthah wants some skin in the game. Like he knows the Lord's going to deliver him, but uh, let me show you how appreciative I am of the. So instead of just receiving the gift and offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as the Psalms will often say, uh, he's going to, uh, I'm really invested in this, uh, Lord, let me let me show you how. I don't. I, I know I'm reading into his motivation there, but it, it's hard to come up with uh, with uh, something different in my mind. Yep, unnecessary vow, and it's going to blow up in his face uh, right quick. Right. I mean, and just you know, he he doesn't he does not need to make a vow because the Lord has already promised him something. He's got a word from the Lord on which to base confidence for his success. So he doesn't need to bargain with the Lord. I, I I don't know if that's that's too crass a way of putting it, but I mean that's that's almost what seems to be happening. If you do this, then I'll do this. Again, before we even talk about what he he vows, he, he he's got a promise. So there's no need to make any sort of promise on his other than you said uh, the the proper sort of vow would be maybe a vow of thanksgiving where he promises to give thanks upon receiving what the Lord has delivered rather than making what the Lord has delivered or promised to deliver contingent upon something that Jephthah promises to do. So, right, at at the very least, we should say that the vow is unnecessary. He does not need to make a vow. And and maybe even there, we just talk a bit here about what our Lord says about vows and the need to make oaths. He addresses this. He brings it up in his Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, don't. Don't make a vow. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's uh, that's the Lord's advice. Trust you can you can trust the Lord to do to do the right thing, hmm. the good thing, the promised thing. He'll do it. Hmm. Um, and He's made that promise before you have offered any kind of response. Which is why it's called grace. I mean, that's the whole thrust of the book of uh, Romans, especially the first eight chapters. Is the second it stops being grace, then it becomes wages, mm. and that becomes a, 
big problem. So, hmm. yeah, he uh, this unnecessary rash vow. I've often heard it called the rash vow. I love that. Uh, I love that word um, or evaluation of the of the vow. Hmm. Definitely rash. Right. So unnecessary rash. The the ESV title labels it tragic for reasons that we'll see when we when we get to the rest of the text. So we've we've already established just the the fact of making a vow. Something has gone wrong, and I I think that's that's worth pointing out too. You you described the book of Judges earlier as a a whirlpool or a corkscrew where it gets worse and worse, faster and faster, and and here you've got Jephthah, who's got the Lord's promise that delivery, that victory will be delivered. And and before he even gets there, he, he's already, it seems, going off the rails a little bit. He's he's making a vow that doesn't need to be made. Then you actually get to what he vows. So take us into, so he, he shouldn't be doing this, but he is. What about the actual content of the vow that he makes, Pastor Cook? Verse 31, he says, whatever comes out of uh, the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace. From the Ammonites it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So um, there's a footnote in many Bibles that the word whatever could also be translated whoever. Um, and so there's this, there's this vagueness about the vow, which again speaks to this probably hasn't been thought through very well. Um, whoever, whatever, this thing is going to is going to come out of the house, and then he's going to offer it to the Lord. Well, it's already the Lord's. Um, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord's, but he's going to offer offer it to the Lord in a very uh, specific way. It will be to the Lord a burnt offering. So that's uh, that's what he. He promises, and of course, he's not in control. Um, this is a promise with no, this is a vow with no controlling elements to it. You can't predict what will come out of the house first, um, but that's but that's what he that's what he said. And as, it's almost as though he's aware the risk is kind of the the risk of what comes out of the house first is kind of the highest mark of piety, so to speak. Mm. But, you know, the if you want to trust the Lord, um, the way you do that is by believing the promise you have. Trust that the Lord will deliver you from the Ammonites. Um, don't show your trust by increasing, you know, making unnecessary risks uh, uh, with something that you may come to regret, which is exactly what happens. Mm. Hmm. Could we call this an example then? I mean, just the way you were framing it, that it, it maybe seems very pious. So look how much trust Jephthah would have that he would promise to give to the Lord as a burnt offering, whatever comes out of his house first. It seems very pious, when in reality, it, it's completely impious because he's already got a promise that he's not trusting. Would this? Could we classify this as an example of, of putting the Lord to the test? I would feel comfortable doing that. Um, I was having a conversation with another friend of mine in the ministry on this particular thing, because right now people are asking questions about masks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> can we just trust the Lord, or do we need to wear the mask, or how does this fit? What's going on? And the text I just 
cannot get away from in that conversation about what's where's that line between trusting and testing the Lord seems to be fuzzy from time to time is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, those who watch over it, you know, watch in vain. And so the city has watchmen. Um, So you don't look at the city and say, you know, if you trusted the Lord, you wouldn't have watchmen. No, that's not how that would work. Um, Rather, you have watchmen, but you have them in the full confidence that if the Lord isn't on my side, this whole exercise is for not anyway. Hmm. And um, that is very uh, appropriate for this context, which is, um, if the Lord's not on your side in this battle, then you got, you're not going to survive anyway. Um, and if he is on your side, well, then you don't, you don't need, you don't need to, to add to it. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I would, I, it's really is, uh, putting, putting the Lord, uh, to the test. Hmm. Right. Because, go ahead. Right, so I mean, he's Just, yeah. he's got a promise no, I, of the Lord, and he doesn't need further proof of it. He he simply can trust what the Lord has spoken, and so to to take this vow is unnecessary. It is foolish. It is rash, and as we will see on the other side of the break, it ends up being terribly tragic. As we've already begun to hint, the the scene has been set. Now that the Lord has delivered the victory and Jephthah has put this vow in place, well, when he comes home, what will or who will come out of his house? That is the answer we will see on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is July 29th, Wednesday, and we are studying Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. We've got Pastor Tim Cook with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we looked at the first part of the text where Jephthah is clothed by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord delivers the victory to his people through Jephthah. But right there in the middle of all that is this vow that he makes, which we've said is unnecessary, it's rash, it's foolish, and the rest of the text revolves around the tragedy that comes from this vow. So we are in verse 34 now of Judges chapter 11. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. 
And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. That's the end of the text, Judges 11, that was verses 34 through 40. So, Pastor Cook, Jephthah comes home. This is the moment where we're going to find out what he will sacrifice according to his vow. And the narrator says, behold, his daughter came out. And again, as you were saying, when you say whatever comes out of your house first, well, I don't know. What was he expecting? I don't know what he was expecting. Um, When I'm gone for a long time and I come home, I I have a pretty, pretty good idea (laughs) of which I could even tell you which one of my children would greet me uh, first. It uh, seems to be pretty predictable, but maybe life, I would imagine life was different back then. Um, Here's, here's something that's worth pointing out, which is the fact that he is laid low by his daughter coming out of the house would indicate that when he made the vow, he had people, in mind as a possibility. Hmm. Um, I've, I've read, and if, if there are uh, students of the book of Judges uh, who have studied this book deeply, uh, they may have encountered uh, what's an increasingly popular uh, take that um, the daughter was not intended, that essentially they're sanitizing his actions which is Jephthah, he made a vow, it was maybe even a good vow, Uh, he never really had people in mind. Well, if you never had people in mind, then when a person comes out of the house, you wouldn't bat an eyelash at it, you'd just wait until something came out of the house that you were expecting, Hmm. like a cat or a dog or a bovine of some sort. Um, So... And so that, uh, that's really incriminating that not only did he make this rash vow, but he made a vow that had to do with people. And uh, so he knew people were certainly part of the possibility. He offered them up as a burnt offering, which was, you know, this was one of the abominable things that the nations did that the Lord said the Israelites were not to do when they came into the land of Canaan. Um, don't sacrifice your children, or, you know, human sacrifice is not appropriate uh, sacrifice to the Lord ever. Um, you, you could, of course, then say, well, Jesus was a human, true, but he was never ours to give. Hmm. I mean, so uh, we don't sacrifice Jesus. Uh, God is the one who supplies uh, the sacrifice. So, yeah, so it another indication that the vow was uh, foolish and unwise. Hmm. Right. He's, he's sad. 
<laughs> well, I mean, because you know, again, we, at the we said the vow is unnecessary and it's it's foolish. But if you're, let's say, just for the sake of argument, you're gonna make a vow like this as a faithful Israelite. If you're going to do it as a faithful Israelite, you're never going to have in your mind the possibility of human sacrifice. A, a faithful Israelite is is going to either make this very verbal or at least have in his mind that the whatever comes out of his house that he would sacrifice, humans are are excluded from that whatever or whoever comes out of the house just before you even are, are uttering the vow. And so the the fact that that Jephthah it, it seems knew that this was a possibility and took no steps to mitigate that possibility. That speaks to the religious decay of Jephthah and, and the religious decay of the people as a whole, which is something... Uh, the go Israelites. ahead. No, especially the Israelites. Uh, Jephthah, remember, he was essentially exiled away from Israel to the land of Tob, where he surrounds himself with people that are called worthless fellows. So, Tob, this whole episode is happening east of the Jordan River. Um, so, not, you know, Jerusalem, for those of you, if your geography is fuzzy, is west of the Jordan River. This is all happening east of the Jordan River, and Jephthah came from a territory even further east than that, and north. So, you have the people of Israel who are faithless to the Lord. That's why they've been sold into the hand of the Ammonites. They find deliverance in one guy. They finally find a guy uh, who can help them, who actually is familiar with Yahweh and his promises and his deliverance and speaks well of him and trusts somewhat in, in his promises. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's an indictment on the nation of Israel itself, that the one guy who trusts in the Lord is a guy they exiled out of their midst who's living in a foreign land. Mm. So then he comes in as kind of their most mature spiritual anything, and this is the, the level of his maturity. It is, uh, turns out, not to be mature at all. So it, you're right. It's uh, it's an indictment on Jephthah, and if this is if this is the best, <laughs> if this is the foolishness of the most faithful Israelite, Lord have mercy on the rest of them. Mm, mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now the the picture here is is quite striking because I mean you just you know put yourself in Jephthah's shoes and in his daughter's shoes. Jephthah is coming home as the conquering hero here, and his daughter greets him quite naturally with with great celebration with tambourines and dances but then this foolish tragic vow that he has made totally reverses the scene which is i mean that's the exact opposite of what the book of judges has been doing you you laid out that cycle for us of the the abcd where you go from confession to deliverance well, we're in that deliverance, and yet in the midst of that deliverance, now all of a sudden, instead of the the rest that we've been seeing at the end, now all of a sudden there's mourning here. Yes, it is the uh, it would be the negative image of a funeral, a Christian funeral, hmm. which is we're in the midst of grief, and yet the pastor comes in and he proclaims this word of hope uh, through Christ and what He's done for us. Right, so this is very much the the structure, the um, shape of the Christian life, where you're holding on to these promises. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
Uh, we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that kind of verbiage, and yet we have this sure and certain thing in Christ that um, really gives us the fuel to, to keep going. Um, here, you have the exact opposite of that, which is you're in the midst of this giant celebration. Everything from every account should be, life has never been better. And yet mm. now, instead of having this bright hope that's getting you through, you have this dark stain that's going to destroy all of it. And so they, again, that, that negative image or that uh, contrasting uh, image is maybe a helpful way to think about it. Mm. So Jephthah then sees his daughter. He mourns. I mean, he tears his clothes, uh, the sign of mourning among the people of Israel. And, and he, he tells his daughter what has happened, that he's made this vow. He says, I can't take it back. His daughter responds, well, in maybe what seems like a pious way, she says, you, you're right, Father, you can't take it back. But, well, we kind of talked about this earlier. Jephthah's vow maybe sounded pious, but it really wasn't. What about his daughter's response here? Yeah, her response, you said it perfectly. It sounds like she is this very pious, faithful woman um, because of what she says, except for this. Uh, at no point in this dialogue does anyone pause and ask, what does the Lord want? Hmm. Does the Lord want us to do this? You know, if, if that was uh, it, and if you, what was the punishment for not carrying out a vow? I, I, I actually don't know. I probably should have done that uh, homework, but it, that idea, idea just popped in my mind. The worst possible punishment of not carrying out a vow, I would imagine, is death. Mm. So Jephthah, step up to the plate, be a man, and sacrifice your life for your daughter. Mm. Like, <laughs> uh but no, they, they never they never ask. They never ask. And really, once this vow thing starts kicking in, um, the Lord, who is very obviously cited as giving uh, the victory into the hand of Jeff, now the Lord is very absent from the conversation from now to the end of the text. Mm -hmm. the, their narrator offers up nothing about the Lord from here on out. Mm -hmm. He doesn't until you get to Samson. Mm -hmm. So the Lord did his thing. He offered the deliverance, and now... What he thinks or how he might be involved in the situation is, and that might explain why this whole episode is running toward death. Hmm. When you cut the Lord out of the conversation and the framework of thought, you're probably going to end up in death. I mean, that's kind of how it goes. Hmm. So. Right. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, Moses gives this command. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God... You shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Of course, then verse, verses 22 and 23 would have been helpful for Jephthah to know earlier. If you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. But, I mean, I think there, you know, it says the Lord your God will require it of you. You will be guilty of sin if you don't. Well, and, and I, again, how this, I know there's, there's other places we could look, particularly in the books of, of Moses that would probably speak to this, but well, what, what would you do if you were guilty of sin? 
there were sacrifices that were commanded, that were guilty of sin, where where something other than you was was given. I mean, this the sacrifices are supposed to be a preaching of the gospel, that that there is a substitute for you in your sin, all pointing toward the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And, and as you said, just, I mean, as an indictment here against Jephthah, his daughter, and, and the people of Israel as a whole, that just doesn't even seem to cross their minds as a possibility. I mean, even, you know, I mean, and and perhaps thinking about Genesis 22 here would be a good example. It it doesn't ever seem to dawn on on anyone that there was a time where where the Lord called upon Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then the Lord provided a substitute. Uh, Maybe maybe we could look for that in this case. I mean, none of of that even seems to be on the radar here, I think is is the point that we want to drive home. And it, it just shows that they it shows how far the people of Israel have fallen throughout this whole period of judges that the only way forward that they see is to go ahead with this sacrifice of another human being, which as we've already said is is obviously completely contrary to anything that the Lord has ever given to his people anywhere. Correct. Yep, that's it. exactly it. I would point out uh, as I did at least I sent you a few notes before the show. Uh, they never consult with anyone. Hmm. No, uh, they don't. Hey, we're in a pickle here. Uh, let's uh, let's look for some spiritual counsel from I don't know the Levites and see what they can offer. Um, help us kind of think through this, you know, sticky wicket we're in. <laughs> and uh, no, you don't. Uh, they don't. You don't have that either. Hmm. So it like trying to. Oh, let's build a bridge and you talk to everybody except an architect. Like, well, come on, you guys. Let's, let's think this through a little bit, a little bit better. Hmm. So the the Lord's word remains absent from this section. You've got Jephthah going off of what he's vowed. You've got the daughter now going off of, of her own thoughts on the matter. And so it sounds pious. It, it's, it's really not. They're not going along with what the Lord has said, not even considering what he have, might have to say on the matter. So continuing then on this, this narrative, well, she says to her father, you know, go ahead, do this now that the Lord has done what he said he would do. But first, let me leave for two months to go weep for my virginity I and my companions. What what's going on with this request that she makes? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I'm not sure. Obviously, uh, the honor of women was in in childbearing. Uh, she's not of. Uh, she's either not of marriageable age or not married. Uh, so this is the thing she's going to lament. Again, I will reference uh, for those people who are uh, deep students of the book of Judges, a lot has been written apart about this particular text as being um, maybe indicating that she wasn't actually sacrificed as a burnt offering um, because she's weeping for her virginity. But again, all those efforts are an effort to sanitize uh, or otherwise paint in good light what Jephthah is up to. Uh, or uh, to sanitize the text to not offend the sensibilities of modern readers, um, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Um, He was extremely explicit about the fact that he was going to offer up uh, this person, uh, 
as a burnt offering. And, um, and she says, go do as your word is said. So it, it's all kind of right, right there. Um, if indeed she was dedicated to some nunnery or something where she lived her life in perpetual celibacy, um, you know, she could have wept her for her virginity for the, the rest of her life. It certainly didn't need to happen before her being sent away. So I'm, I'm strongly discouraged the, anyone listening to the, to the program of taking that approach to the text. Um, there's just not much here to suggest that, uh, she wasn't actually, you know, killed mm. or sacrificed. Mm. So, yeah, she does this. Her companions go with her, and she spends. She comes back too. I mean, that so that's courageous of her. But um, uh, and then it becomes a thing that the people of Israel do. Um, the end of verse forty says, "The daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year." And you might read into that and say there were lots of things the Israelites were supposed to do. There were a lot of feasts and festivals, the Passover, the feast. I mean, all this stuff, the Lord had all these festivals and memorials and expectations that they were supposed to do. There's no indication that they're doing them hmm. uh, as a, in, in the book of Judges. And now you've got this man and his stupid vow and his daughter who uh, didn't fight it, and this, okay, we're going to take this thing, and this is the thing we're going to remember year after year. It's just absurd. Like, come on. Hmm. That's, um, sometimes the way you you honor the Lord, not sometimes, the way you honor the Lord is by trusting in what he said. You don't improve upon what he said. Hmm. I used to watch cooking shows, and I remember they had some, right, five-star chef or whatever. I don't know what the highest star rating is, but he gave the contestants a recipe, his own recipe, and he said, replicate this dish. And then he gives them permission, and he says, uh, you know, if you want to try to improve on the recipe, go for it. And like half of them did. And he just rolls his eyes, and the commentators of the show are like, these people are stupid. Like, what are you doing? You can't improve. If you were a five-star chef, maybe you'd think about tinkering with the recipe, but you're just like, you know some accountant somewhere who likes to play chef in your kitchen sometimes. <laughs> <So> <laughs> just trust. Trust what you've been given. Mm. Trust what you've been given. Mm. So mm. that would be my, that's as much as I can uh, take with any authority away from uh, this section. I, I, I'm not quite sure what to do with, with all of it, except to say the fact that this becomes the thing, the memorial they actually observe year after year. Uh, that is um, that that doesn't speak to their benefit either. Hmm. But hmm. if you don't say that out loud, you might not pick up on that the first time. That's not immediately obvious, but it, it needs to be said. No, I, I think you're right, and I, I think you're right about that because there is, and this is not the only place in the Book of Judges where you come upon a spot where you're you're sort of at a loss, and you you wonder what what do I do with this. But I, you've pointed us in the right direction because you're keeping us focused on, well, what did God actually give to his people? And, and especially with this, this matter of verse 40, which, again, you know, where, where is this coming from? It does not match up with what the people actually have been given by God to do in their religious life. This is not commanded anywhere. They're making it up for themselves, which fits in this 
fuller picture that's been painted, not only in this text, but again, throughout the book of Judges. And it's, it's going to get worse, as you've already pointed out, as we continue through this narrative, that the people, they've fallen very far. And, and it, it just continues to spiral downward. They're, they, need, <laughs> they need to come back to the Lord, to his word, to what he's actually given. And, and all of it just builds this big case when you put it together like that. And so, I mean, I, again, what do you do with it? Well, I, I think you, you keep your eyes focused on what is God actually given, and you see how far this is from that. So, Pastor Cook, we, we've got about six minutes here left on the morning to, to reflect a little more and, and to maybe make some more application to our lives as Christians with this text, which again is like, well, how, how do I do that? <laughs> so you, you've got a, you've got a couple of notes here about uh, Martin Luther's pastor. Uh, is his first name Johannes Bugan? It's, it's Bugenhagen is his last name. And I think most people were named Johannes. If they weren't named Martin in the 1500s, it was Johannes is the other option, right? So Johannes Bugenhagen, Martin Luther's pastor, makes some comments and concerning vows, and he uses this passage as an example. How does he make use of it, and, and what should we do with it today? Sure. He he's, uh, talks about this vow in the context of the monastic vows of celibacy, and so he's writing it on a book about marriage uh, specifically, and so he, uh, he lobs the estate of marriage um, and says... Uh, he says, if you want to keep any vow at all, the vow you you got to keep is baptism. Mm. <laughs> he says, keep. Uh, he says, since the Christian is free in his conscience, he must above all things surely watch how he keeps his first baptismal vow in a proper Christian manner. Uh, if he decides later to pursue a life of today's orders or rules, whether in the state of virginity, if he has the grace, or in the state of marriage, through whatever Christian dealing he can and is able to do so, he must examine his body's needs and tolerance and must see to it very carefully that he does not kill his soul through some human fleshly folly and opinion, which have a nice appearance, and thus sink into eternal misery of hellish pain and kill himself with holy, thoughtless, mad, apparently beautiful, and godless vows. Okay, so he's setting this up. Which, Well, let's look at one of those. This is what the Prince Jephthah did with regard to his own beloved daughter who approached him with lovely music of the lyre and song as he returned home from a victory over his enemies with triumph and great pageantry. He had made such a foolish vow during the battle, namely that if God granted him victory and he would return home with joy, he would offer God the Lord the first thing that came running toward him. Note, uh, now note what a foolish and careless vow this was. Therefore, God decreed that it also turned out foolishly and inhumanely, that the only daughter of Jephthah, the prince of his people, was murdered and executed in a miserable fashion. This was never agreeable to God, nor did he wish either the vow of Jephthah or the death of his little daughter. Therefore, in this example, God wanted to show us how all absurd, foolish, and malicious vows and human little thoughts proceed and will always go forth, that is, toward death. He has included it in Scripture in this way as an eternal remembrance and warning to us all. Therefore, I say one thing, let us be wise and clever so that we do not also murder and kill eternally our dearest only daughter, our soul, <laughs> through mm -hmm. our own ridiculous, foolish vows. And then he wraps it up there. So his point is this. Uh, God didn't want the vow, and he didn't want him to carry out the vow. He didn't want either of those things. 
So Jephthah took it upon himself to make a promise that was never commanded by God. He made a promise that was never done with the consultation of God and his word. And as a result, uh, it led to death. So don't do that. Uh, don't do that. It's also worth pointing out, and we uh, I will just reference it here quickly, uh, Saul, king, the first king of Israel, makes a similar vow uh, about um, eating or drinking after defeating his enemies, and his own son, Jonathan, uh, seeing that the troops are tired, he starts eating food. And so uh, Saul finds out about this, and he had said very rashly, even if it's my own son who breaks this vow, I'm going to kill him. So uh, they do this thing. Jonathan, unaware of the vow his dad made, uh, goes out and eats this food and gives food to his troops so they can conquer the enemy. And then when they come back, Saul is irate. Uh, and so he's, he's ready to kill Jonathan. And it's the people, it's the arm, the command, the rest of the soldiers who step forward and like, what are you doing? This is stupid. Should we kill Jonathan who gave us deliverance from the Lord's hand? You can't do that. Uh, this is what the Lord has done. And so they step, they intervene, and they save Jonathan's life. And it all works out okay. Uh, Saul is rejected from the kingdom for a separate reason, because he violates a vow or promise that the Lord has commanded, namely the slaughter of the Amalekites uh, and, and the offering of animals uh, for sacrifice. So there's a precedent beyond this of a, of a rash vow that was made, and then when you realize that the vow is rash, you don't somehow make it right by carrying it through. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis has a famous line in uh, Mere Christianity about uh, progress. When you're moving the wrong direction, it's the person who stops and turns around who is the most progressive. Mm -hmm. And that's what they should have done. Yep. Hey, this was a really stupid vow. The right thing to do was, uh, I repent of that thing I did, and I'm not going to compound the problem. Mm. Yeah, for sure, for sure, Pastor Cook. We got just like one minute here, and I want to I want to end on a on a bit of of gospel. How do we how do we see the gospel even within a text like this? Uh, these are still the people of God, and He still loves them, and He still delivers them uh, from their pain and their fortune. And those promises, all those promises that He gave to the people of Israel, uh, are still theirs. They they're not revoked. Uh, in any way, it is nothing but a call. Return back to these promises. Um, and so no matter how far down the whirlpool they're at, uh, they can always turn back, and the Lord will receive them graciously uh, and carry out his faithful work among them, and likewise among us. Uh, you never sin yourself outside of God's grace. Um, you, uh, you know, he's, he's always waiting uh, to receive you. He's faithful and just and forgive yourself sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So don't come up with a new program. Uh, return to what God has said clearly uh, in his word and trust this for your, for your life and salvation. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Judges 11 verses 29 through 40. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to do it. Thank you, sir. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.